Welcome to Album Clash, the podcast in which we take two albums that share a connection and pit them against each other inside the ring of death. Two albums enter, only one may leave. Metaphorically. This is Album Clash. Hello, this is Album Clash. When you're bored and restless... And you need a new podcast And nothing, yeah, nothing is sounding right You just type in our name And I swear on your favourite platform We'll be waiting to entertain you again January, September, or May. All you've got to do is press play with a new part every other Thursday. You've got you album got clash. clash. <laughs> <laughs> I I realise I am making it on from my own back here because my increasingly elaborate intros. <laughs> I mean, it's okay. becoming... it was it was lovely to hear. It was a lilting uh, start to uh, a fresh pod. Thank you very much. Uh, hello, Kevin. How are you? I am wonderful in, well, basically dealing with the nonsense that is uh, the British weather. Uh, so last time we recorded, basically, we were dying uh, from the heat. And now it's all the rain. Well, it's been lovely here today, actually. But yes, the uh, weekend is uh, not a nice forecast. It's a bit mad at the minute. Would not fancy uh, walking around um, a big bit of grass in Hoyley. <laughs> no, indeed. <laughs> Although, to be fair, people listening in Southern Europe are thinking like, yeah, at least your fucking garden is on fire. <laughs> so, yeah, you given, know. given my uh, particular colouring... Uh, <laughs> Would not would not uh, recommend. No, indeed, indeed. Uh, are you looking forward to starting a new class, though, Kevin? I am. This is a this is a really exciting one. Um, yeah, and a, a new artist as well. Indeed, a new artist, someone we haven't covered before. So it's my it's my pick. So we're continuing our album clash civil war season. I'm hoping that this week and a couple of weeks' time will be somewhat more whimsical than our last couple of parts. I think so. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, it's Paul Simon, the diminutive uh, folkster. Um, and so, yeah. Art's best mate slash uh, very much not best mate. <laughs> well, yeah, don't worry, we'll get to that. Depen- depending on the day or the hour, to be honest. <laughs> I-, I feel with the uh, with the moniker diminutive folkster, um, I've probably just earned myself a spot on the second mentions Twitter account. <laughs> anyway uh yeah so this week i am taking us through paul simon's well it's not his debut solo album it's his second solo album but it's the first one he released after simon and garfunkel had dissolved it's the first real one yeah exactly the self-titled paul simon uh and kev in a couple of weeks you're taking us through well quite a famous album i think uh yeah the little known and uh poorly selling graceland Indeed, uh, in which we will finally ask the question, who is worse, Paul Simon or Roger Taylor? Still Roger uh, Taylor. F- well, actually, we'll find the answer. It's probably Linda Ronstadt. <laughs> <laughs> no, still Roger Taylor. <laughs> will always be. <laughs> yeah, fair. 
Although he's in love with his car. He is in love with his car. And to be fair, as bad as Roger Taylor is, he he definitely wins the battle of the Rogers because he's nowhere near as bad as Roger Waters. No, and if, if, in fact, if we are talking about uh, people who were prominent in the 80s, uh, there's a certain uh, gladioli-wielding uh, oh, frontman who <laughs> very much yeah. is the worst. <laughs> Agreed. Anyway... Um, <laughs> reversing out of that cul-de-sac <laughs> just can't get you out of my head time kev any shite yes i'm back <laughs> <laughs> okay go on so in fact it was yesterday it was yesterday evening so i had nothing absolutely nothing for for terrible until samantha was preparing uh our tea and she was peeling uh some courgettes and she happens she happened to notice the particularly since some changes to the way things are imported into this country, lots of the fruits and vegetables that we got uh, seem to have a lot more sand on them. And this courgette was quite sandy, which instantly my brain started humming the song Oh Sandy from Greece. (laughs) (laughs) Way, way, way. (laughs) No, stop it. Stop it. Stop. (laughs) So, yeah, that that was mine. (laughs) Very good. Uh, for American listeners, uh, courgettes are zucchinis. Yeah. I've no idea why there's two different names. <laughs> no, or egg, indeed. Eggplant or aubergine? I mean, yeah, but eggplant's a fucking shit name for a vegetable. Sorry, it Americans. Look very it very eggy. Is. It looks fuck all like an egg. It tastes even less like an egg, so stop it. It's an aubergine. <laughs> <laughs> but a capsicum. Well, that's just a chili. No, no, that's a... It's a no, it is. No, it's a pepper. The, it's, yeah, it's a chilli pepper. No, not a chilli pepper. A, a yes, cap- it is a chilli pepper. No, like the Americans call normal peppers, like capsicums. Well, that's fucking stupid because it's, it's like the, the, the spice well, that exactly. we know is chilli is actually called capsicum, so that's fucking ridiculous. Um, we won't even get into the fact that you've got two different names for coriander, one for coriander leaf, which is cilantro, which no fucking else calls it, and one for <laughs> coriander seed, which is coriander. Stop it, Americans. Stop it. We invented the language. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And we stole yeah, a load of words from around the world. Yeah, and that's the only thing that the British have ever stolen from around the world. Yeah, just... Let's move on. Just don't go to the uh, British Museum. <laughs> or in fact any British museum to be honest like, exactly. or stately home there's probably loads uh, this is already more amusing than our last show <laughs> <laughs> although we have not talked about revolutionary mushrooms yet so <laughs> no I'm, I'm never beating that no you're not uh, anyway so my shite yeah, also something that just popped into my head and I randomly started singing. So my, my daughter, uh, she is, uh, she's broken up from school today for the summer. And like within, I, I don't know if you ever did this when you were in school, but you, you're put into like, not just your class, but you put into different houses. So there's like people in each class are in different houses. So it was like greenhouse and yellow house or whatever it might be. Yeah, Animal house? Do you have that? Well, yeah, exactly. There you go. Animal house. Robot house! Um, so, obviously, as I've made numerous references to Catholicism, so the ones in our primary school were Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. Oh, well, <laughs> of course of they course were. Of course they were. <laughs> so, anyway, in my daughter's school, they are much more mundane. It's like yellow, 
green, blue and red. Three primary colours and green for some reason. So anyway, there you go. <laughs> so my daughter is in Greenhouse and uh, they won the house competition this year. Their, their, their house got the most house points in the whole school. So in the last assembly of the term this year, my daughter came bounding out of school and told me that in the, in the assembly today, they got given the trophy and she said, everybody in the house came up to receive a certificate <laughs> at which point i started singing east 17's everybody everybody in the house of green <laughs> i don't know why you've included that as your bad song it's a banger. <laughs> fair <laughs> Uh, it did annoy my daughter a lot, so, you know... Well, because I know exactly it. how you'll have sang it, which will be about two inches from her face. Why so far? <laughs> with, with your arms flailing wildly as though you were one of those blow-up things that are outside car dealerships. Uh, were you watching me? <laughs> <laughs> Always. <sighs> anyway, that's my shite. <laughs> Oh dear. Um, do you? Well, I'm assuming you've got something you want to add to the playlist. What's your What's your shout? So my shout uh, this week. So I had loads. Um, there's there loads of stuff that I um, encountered this week. But what I have got is something that's relatively new. Uh-huh. So I'm sure you will have come across uh, the bat, the three piece uh, from LA Gabriel's. Lovely bit of uh, soul. Peter's lads. <laughs> Archangels, the uh, angels, <laughs> and their their track off their album Glory is an absolute rammer. It's a pure bit of funky soul, and it's Ooh. a bit moody as well. So yeah, get nice. on it. Will do. So that's it's called Glory. Did you say? Yeah, that's right. Great. Okay, I will get on to that. So mine is also new. So you may be aware, Kevin, that indie stalwart Slow Dive are back. Well, I am aware that um, the people have started looking at their shoes again. <laughs> yeah, indeed. So, um, yeah, Slow Dive have a new album coming out uh, in the next few weeks. I don't know the exact date. The album is called Everything is Alive. Uh, and the first single from that is a song called Skin in the Game. And yeah, as Kev said, it's a lovely piece of psychedelic shoegaze. There you go. Great stuff. Indeed. Right. Top trumps. Okay. I'm going to lose. <laughs> yeah. I think I think you are. <laughs> I mean, it's probably not as. No, I'm not, I'm not going to say anything. I'm going to lose. <laughs> no, you get, you, you're probably going to get an absolute shoe in here. <laughs> yeah, I am. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna start from the bottom because this is my best chance of getting one on the board. So I'm gonna start because I won last time. So it's my honour. I'm going to start with scores. All music five out of five for Paul Simon. Ditto. Blender, 5 out of 5. Ditto. Rolling Stone, 5 out of 5. Bang. Ditto. All right. Okay. The Guardian, 4 out of 5. Um, I don't have a Guardian score. I have the Independent, 5 out of 5. All right. So you're, you, you're edging it then. Uncut, 4 out of 5. Uh, uncut, 10 out of 10. Oh, fuck. Record Collector. Five out of five. I don't have a record collector, but I do have a record guide. <laughs> Which says... Oh, well, I have a... Is that the record it guide? It is. Well, I know I win on this one. I know it, because obviously I've got his yeah. reviews on both. Uh, by the way, guys, there is some 
all-time classic <laughs> knobby coming up in a couple of weeks. <laughs> Today's is okay. Grace Lat. Oh my god. <laughs> anyway, right. So Chris Gow's record collector's guide, whatever he fucking calls it in the village voice, gave Paul Simon an A plus. It's only an A. Yeah. Are we calling this a draw? Um I th- I'm I'm happy to call that a draw, like it's a draw. Well, that was my best chance of a win, and it was a draw, so I'm fucked. <laughs> uh, right, okay, let's go charts. Uh, US, number four. If you just bear with me a second, I will find... Because uh, there's so many awards I've got to scroll past. Oh, fuck off. <laughs> US, number three. Shit. UK, number one. Number one. Norway, Sweden, Japan, and Finland also number one. Ooh, interesting. So Sweden, number 13. Norway, number 13. Finland, Ooh. number six. Oof. I've edged ahead here. Uh, Canada, Netherlands, number two. Number one in both. Mm, shit, you've pet me back. Spain, number three. 15. Wow. Australia, number five. Number one. Fuck off. (laughs) My lowest is West Germany. It only got to number 37. My lowest is Japan, where it reached 46. Wow. I I think this one's pretty even as well, Kev. I think it's a draw as well. I think this is a draw. Fucking hell. Well, I'm definitely fucked now. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So I know I'm losing 4 0 because I ain't getting anywhere near the next two. Um, Sales, all I could get on sales is Paul Simon's eponymously titled album sold more than one million copies in the US. Okay, so by July 1987, it sold six million copies worldwide. Yeah, and I think it's sold over 16 million copies now, so yeah. Well done, you've won that one. (laughs) Take it away, just bring it home, go on. Um, Awards? Yep. It won uh, Grammys for... Album of the Year, and for Record of the Year, um, between 87 and 88. Uh, it was nominated for Best Pop Vocal, uh, uh, Best Male Performance, and Song of the Year for Graceland itself. It won a Brit Award, and has been on all kinds of all-time lists. Well, we'll come to lists in a minute. Um, so, Paul Simon won a nice round number of awards. Uh, zero. <laughs> okay. <laughs> right, two nil, come on. <laughs> okay, so we will do, might as well do lists at this point then. Yeah, go on. So number one in the Rolling Stone year in records in 1986 was number one of the albums of the year in the Village Voice in that year. It was number six in the NME's albums of the year and number one in Q Magazine's albums of the year. And then, what about your all-time top rankings? So all-time top rankings, it was 81st in the 2003 Rolling Stone list. It's In the most recent edition of the Rolling Stone Greatest 500 albums, it reached 46, so it actually had improved its number. Yeah, okay. So Rolling Stone top 500 greatest albums, no listing in 2003. In 2012, it placed 268, and in 2020, that had dropped to a lowly 425. 
Uh, Colin Pop Larkin, in his top 1,000 albums in 2000, listed it as 984th. Um, so let's just have a look. Uh, number 43 in Pops. <laughs> there you go. Well, I mean, I'm assuming you've got more certifications than just a platinum in the US, which means I think you've won 4 0. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Right, fine. So, interestingly, um, so it went platinum more times in the UK and Australia than it did in the US. So eight times platinum in Australia and the UK, only five times platinum in the US. Mm, that is interesting. But yeah, you've won 4 nil, so fuck off. <laughs> yeah, so we, we knew that was going to be the case. We, we did. It's my fault because I chose it as well. So... Uh, that is my, I mean, obviously I won the last one, but that is my third heavy defeat in the last four clashes. So I'm really struggling here. Well, c- clearly you, you're getting a, a bad set of cards. Yeah, well, indeed, I am getting a bad set of cards. But let's see which album will emerge victorious in the real clash in a couple of weeks' time. Shall I start taking us through the background to Paul Simon by Paul yes, Simon? Yes, I think you should. Right, okay. So, as I said earlier, it was his second solo album, but it was his first proper solo album. It's the first one that was released uh, after the dissolution of Simon and Garfunkel. Um, His first solo album uh, actually wasn't released in the US until 1981, when it was included in a box set, but it was released in, in 1965 in England. Anyway... This is the first proper one, as we said. It was released on the 24th of January 1972 on Columbia Records. It was recorded a year earlier, actually. It started in January 71, finished in March 71, in quite a few studios, mainly CBS Studios in San Francisco and New York, and at Western Studios in Hollywood. It's produced by Paul Simon himself and his longtime collaborator, Roy Haley. So, yeah, I'm going to talk a lot about the breakup of Simon and Garfunkel. Um, just, just before you start... I am going to have to get uh, Garfunkeling out of my system. <laughs> Feel free. <laughs> I, I just need I just needed to say the word, the phrase Garfunkeling just for my own amusement. <laughs> I, I apologise for those of you who, well, actually, I don't apologise. If you've never seen Flight of the Concords, then I envy you because you've got something great to discover. <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely. Anyway, um, right. <laughs> sorry so- about that. No, you're fine. So, 1970, Simon and Garfunkel release Bridge Over Troubled Water. You might have heard of it. At the time, it was the biggest selling album ever. So, what we're saying there is, at the time, it was outselling Sgt. Pepper's. Clearly, Sgt. Pepper's has now overtaken it again, but that's how big Bridge Over Troubled Water was. It was fucking huge, okay? But... Paul Simon and Art Garfunkel had drifted apart, both personally and creatively, and the relationship had become somewhat strained. Um, so during the recording of that album, Art Garfunkel was often absent from the sessions, which left Paul Simon and Roy Haley to compose and record the arrangements. And Art used to turn up to sing the vocal, basically. So Paul Simon... In a 1972 Rolling Stone interview to accompany the release of this album, told John Landau the following. 
During the making of Bridge Over Troubled Water, there were a lot of times when it just wasn't fun to work together. It was very hard work and it was complex. Both of us thought, I think Artie said he felt that he didn't want to record. And I know I said I felt that if I had to go through these kind of personality abrasions, I didn't want to continue to do it. Then when the album was finished, Artie was going to do Carnal Knowledge. I'll come back to that in a minute. And I went to do an album by myself. We didn't say that's the end. We didn't know if it was the end or not. But it came apparent by the time the movie was out, and by the time my album was out, that it was over. When we came into the studio, I became more and more me. In the studio, making the tracks and choosing the musicians. Partly because a great deal of the time during Bridge, Artie wasn't there. I was doing things myself with Roy Haley, our engineer and co-producer. We were planning tracks out, and to a great degree, that responsibility fell to me. Artie and I shared responsibility, but not creativity. For example... We always said Artie does the arranging, but anybody who knows anything would know that was a fabrication. How can one guy write the songs and the other guy do the arranging? How does that happen? If a guy writes the song, he obviously has a concept, but when it came to making decisions, it had always been Roy, Artie and me. And this later became difficult for me. Quite a long quote there, but I think quite telling in terms of what Paul Simon's mindset was. Absolutely. So, I'm going to go back even earlier than that, though, because... Well, I, I was initially going to say there's long been suggesting that, but I think it's been confirmed by both of them. But actually, the roots of the separation were laid down 15 years earlier when they just started recording together. So, on October the 16th, 1957, as 16-year-olds, they recorded their first single, Hey School Girl. Um, an independent record company, Big Records. I mean, that's an imaginative title. They signed the pair and their company boss, Sid Prozen, released the song. Uh, under the na- duo name of Tom and Jerry. Um, it was a success. It sold 100,000 copies. It got to number 49 in the Billboard Hot 100. But at that point was the first seeds of disagreement and disenchantment between the two sown. So, Sid Prozen uh, approached Paul Simon straight after that to record two s- solo singles. And so Paul Simon excitedly agreed. But he forgot to do one thing. What do you think that might have been, Kev? Did he forget to put a note out for the milkman to say, I want <laughs> three three pints today instead of the normal two? Oh, yeah, and forgot to tell Art Garfunkel he was going to do any of this. Yeah, that one. That, that one. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I, understandably, Art Garfunkel felt somewhat betrayed. Uh, and that sort of set a bit of a resentment between the two and a bit of simmering anger. I can't quite think why. I think I think as well that, like, you listen to any of the Simon and Garfunkel stuff, and obviously if you think of the acclaim for their music is, whilst, you know, if Paul Simon's writing and lyrics are, are fantastic, the thing that unfortunately, unfortunately, or unfortunately for Paul Simon, you kind of remember all the towering vocals, like from Bridge Over Troubled Water, like the lyrics are gorgeous yeah. and the arrangement is amazing, but it's that voice, and you're never going to get past that. No. Interesting that you use the word towering, <laughs> because it's not just in their voice. <laughs> Indeed. That Anyone who knows Art Garfunkel and Paul Simon will know that one of them is somewhat more vertically challenged than the other, let's say. <laughs> and that was something Paul Simon was genuinely very insecure about. He, he had problems with his mental health, which for which he sought professional help. And one of the reasons were 
he was very self-conscious about his lack of stature, let's say. And that was something that Art Garfunkel really played on. So in um, a 2017 biography of Paul Simon by Robert Hillman, Paul Simon told the author, I remember during a photo session, Artie said, no matter what happens, I'll always be taller than you. Did that hurt? I guess it hurt enough for me to remember 60 years later. Fuck. Wow. I mean, that's uh, both a mask and uh, Ian Chappell holding a grudge. Exactly. So their former manager, Mort Lewis, he said that uh, they both envied each other's place in the team. Paul often thought the audience saw Artie as a star because he was the featured singer, exactly as you just said. And some people probably thought Artie even wrote the songs. But Artie knew Paul wrote the songs and this controlled the future of the pair. I don't think he ever got over what happened with Tom and Jerry, as we said. Art Garfunkel, in uh, his 2017 memoir, uh, basically agreed with that. He said, I concluded an eighth of a second and the friendship was shattered for life. I never forget and I never really forgive. Paul won the writer's royalties. I got the girls. Stay classy, Art. Stay classy. <laughs> yeah, but he did, he did do a Belton song about rabbits. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed, uh, written by the same fellow that wrote the theme tune to the Wombles. <laughs> Didn't he also produce uh, Katie Mallower as well? What, Mike Bat or Art Garfunkel? <laughs> Mike Bat. <laughs> I don't know. I'm probably. pretty sure that that was, a, that was a thing. Okay, fair enough. Someone who clearly uh, needs to know more about the perambulatory methods uh, of the Beijing city <laughs> region. Indeed. <laughs> I have been to China and there are nowhere near 10 million bicycles in Beijing. No, I, I, I have also been to Beijing. I did not see that many. No, I don't think I saw 10. I saw lots of very polluting cars that meant that there was a perma smog. No, Kevin, there was not a perma smog in Beijing. You are mistaken. <laughs> the air is very clean in Beijing. <laughs> yes, indeed. Anyway, can I get back to this, please? I mean, this is, very, as, as you said, this is very much more whimsical than um, certainly our previous one. Yeah, it is indeed. Anyway, right, so let's skip forward a bit. You will recall... Simon and Garfunkel did the soundtrack for the Mike Nichols hit The Graduate. Uh, off the back of that success, they were both cast as actors in Nichols' next film, 1970's Catch-22. Ultimately, Paul's part in the movie was eventually cut. Art Garfunkel's wasn't. And then Art Garfunkel agreed to make another film, Carnal Knowledge, meaning he would be away for six months or so leaving Paul Simon to write all the material for what would become Boudreaux Troubled Water so this is ironic this is Paul Simon again saying in his biography bearing in mind the betrayal that Art Garfunkel felt right back in the Tom and Jerry days where Paul Simon had signed a deal to do some solo singles he knew how I'd feel but he did it anyway <laughs> Mike told Art he was going to be a big movie star and Artie couldn't say no he later told me he didn't see why it was such a big deal to me. He'd make a movie six months, and I could write the songs for the next album. Then we could get together and record them. I thought, fuck you, I'm not going to do that. I can't imagine Paul Simon swearing. And the truth is, I think if Artie had become a big movie star, he would have left. Instead of just being the guy who sang Paul Simon's songs, he'd be Art Garfunkel, a big star all by himself. And this made me think about how I could still be the guy who wrote the songs and sung them. I didn't need Artie. Again... 
Let's go back to 1957, shall we? <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> anyway, they didn't officially split up, but after Bridge Over Trouble Water released, it was clear they didn't want to work together again. So Art Garfunkel went off and made kind of knowledge. Paul Simon went off. He actually did some teaching for a while, but he wrote what would become his eponymously titled album. Uh, just one last bit on background. So as for the subject matter, there's an awful lot of the songs on there, uh, including things like Run That Body Down and Congratulations, which make either direct or indirect reference to his then wife, Peggy. Anything else on background from you? No, I've got nothing to add. Okay. So, Kev, how did you first discover Paul Simon by Paul Simon? First time listening. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, that is a surprise. Never, never heard it before. Um, you must be familiar with some of the songs. Oh, God, oh God yeah. Like, So I am I am very familiar with, I mean, one particular uh, song off, off the album. But no, for some reason, it, it never never really came across this album. Like, I'd very much grown up with Simon and Garfunkel and... Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of listened to some of the some of the later Paul Simon albums after after this during the seventh his seventies period where you know he was banging out some absolute rammers. Um, but now for some reason I'd never come across this one. Okay, fair enough. Well, I, I am genuinely uh, excited to hear what you think of it. Then, in that case, um, complete opposite for me. So I've said many times on Album Clash that my dad's favourite artist is Bob Dylan. Uh, what I don't think I've said is that my dad's second favourite artist is Paul Simon. Uh, so, yeah, I have known this album for as long as I can remember. It used to get played in the car. Yeah, my dad loves this album. And so I've, I've yeah, a long, long, long history with it. Shall we talk artwork? Let's. I'm, I'm excited to talk about it. So I have written only two words in my uh, commentary on the artwork. I'm going to guess it's the same words that I wrote. Nice Parker. So I went lovely Parker. (laughs) So yeah, there you go. (laughs) It's Paul Simon wearing a Parker jacket. That's all it is. And it's a really nice Parker. It's a lovely Parker, yeah. He looks really toasty in it. He does look really toasty in his probably large boys Parker. (laughs) I'm sorry, Paul. That was a low blow. Oops, sorry. So was that. <laughs> I need to stop. You really do. Like, I mean, you're punching down and like quite a far way down. Oh, we're bad men. Yes. I mean, that's been established over the course of yeah, the entire part. I mean, there really is nothing else to say about the, the either the front or the back cover. It's a picture of Paul Simon wearing a Parker jacket. It's a lovely Parker. Uh, and it's not even, it's not a very exciting font. No, it's not an exciting font at all. And I'm really upset that Mancunians have uh, have, have, uh, have appropriated the Parker because, you know, it should be more accessible to all. And to be fair, they've also kind of nicked the cagoule as well. Uh, that's true. They have. Yeah, indeed. Anyway, yeah, that's the album cover. <laughs> <laughs> Who would have thought that we would have ended up with some cagoule chat? Quite so. <laughs> right. Although, so you say Mancunians have appropriated the cagoule. Well, they, I suppose they have, but also Kangol. No, well, Ka- Kangol like, kind of just went, like, certainly of our age, the Kangol um, appropriated the Payat. 
the pie hat and also the beret because like there was loads of shit berets rocking around in the early 2000s as well with Kangol on the front. Backwards berets. Yeah, backwards. Exactly. Yeah. Terrible. (laughs) Like a fucking bunch of Wolfie Smiths were wandering around the place. I mean, I would be fine with a bunch of Wolfie Smiths, but (laughs) maybe not in Kangol hats. (laughs) Right. I am going proper down down cul-de-sacs. Why is it that so many people are so cross and surprised that Robert Lindsay is quite left wing? <laughs> okay, I know it was only a character, but come on. <laughs> um, well, yeah, if you look at his a lot of his, um, I mean, he yes. basically plays Derek Hatton <laughs> in yes. GBH. Exactly. Anyway, huh. no one should play Derek Hatton. No, not even Derek Hatton. <laughs> Very good. I like that. Yeah, <laughs> I'm enjoying this episode so far. <laughs> Our listeners probably somewhat less so. Yeah, I mean, I mean, we're gonna get we're gonna get into some niche. <laughs> you can see it now. <laughs> Shall we start going through the tracks, Kevin? I think we should absolutely. So we start with Mother and Child Reunion. This was the lead single released just a week before the album on the 17th of January '72. It reached number four on the Billboard Hot 100. And I'm going to say it now. You can see why. It's fucking great. I mean, it's a proper, like, so obviously I know this song. Mm -hmm. But it's a proper surprising way to to open your debut album is with a, well, something that sounds like Jimmy Cliff. Well, uh, you may or may not be aware that Jimmy Cliff's backing group actually plays on this song. Really? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so it was, yeah, it was recorded in Dynamic Sound Studios in Kingston. Jimmy Cliff's backing group play on the song, uh, and also Sissy Houston, mother of Whitney, sings uh, as part of the background vocals as well. I mean, it's like it's it's great. I, I really I really it like is. it. It's it's a surprising start, and I bet at the time, like people went, "What the fuck." Like, you know, this is Troubadour, Paul Simon, and he's gone reggae. So I think to not only have it as opening your album, to have it as the lead single as well. It's bold. And obviously, it's very bold, but inspired. Because, as I said, it got to number four. So audience, it's clearly him saying, again, exactly as you said, I am not just that guy that writes the songs for art to sing. Here's me doing my own thing. It sounds completely different from what you'd expect to hear. I'm singing it. I've got these boss musicians backing me. It's inspired and it is bold. Yeah. Really love this. Well, and I mean, when when we talk in two weeks' time, that he is a man for a bold statement. He is, very much so. So I just want to go back to that same Rolling Stone interview that I've uh, quoted him from earlier. Uh, on this song, he said, I wanted to sing other types of songs that Simon and Garfunkel wouldn't do, as I just said. Mother and Child Reunion, for example, is not a song you'd have normally thought Simon and Garfunkel would do. Why Don't You Write Me it was supposed to sound like that, but it came out a bad imitation. Uh, he also wrote about the source of some of the lyrics. So interestingly, he actually wrote and recorded the arrangement before he wrote any of the lyrics, which was the opposite to how he usually worked. But about the lyrics, he said, uh, do you know where the words came from on that song? You never would have guessed. I was eating in a Chinese restaurant downtown. There was a dish called Mother and Child Reunion. It's chicken and eggs. And I said, oh, I love that title. I've got to use that one. So there you go. Oh, and from from that to, because it, it does sound like someone coming home from a long trip, like pining to see like the, 
wife, wife and kids, you know. Well, but it's not. So this is no. The, this no is the, that's the thing. The it, it sounds, it. That's what it sounds like. It does, and it's it's such an uplifting song to listen to. But it's actually about death. It's about a mother mm-hmm. having lost her child. I would not give you false hope, because a mother and child reunion is just an emotion away. Sorry, only emotion. It, it's it's so sad. It's so poignant. But the way it's arranged, it sounds so uplifting. Those backing vocals are just gorgeous. Yeah, it's great. It's just, it's really good. It is really good. Love it. Big fan. Okay, Duncan. This is the third and final single from the album, uh, released in July of 72. So three singles in the space of six months. Fair enough. It reached number 52 on the Hot 100, so not as successful. Um, It tells the story, if you listen to the lyrics, of a man called Lincoln Duncan, who is a fisherman's son. He can't sleep in the motel room he's in because the couple next door are having very loud sex. That sends him into a long reverie where he reminisces about leaving hometown in the Canadian provinces to go to New England, sweet New England. He recalls being destitute, losing confidence, losing faith. Uh, losing his virginity even <laughs> to a, a young female street preacher, uh, and in the end, he's lying on a on the ground playing his guitar and thanking God for his fingers. Uh, well, so the first thing I'll say is this is what Simon and Garfunkel fans would have been expecting to hear. Well, yeah, because it sounds it sounds like El Con- El Condor Paso. Interesting. I've said it sounds like the boxer, <laughs> but yeah, it's. It very much is akin to his previous his previous works. Um, it just sounds really sweet and a lovely, yeah, just a lovely song. Like, the, yeah, those flute parts at the end of each verse, they just they evoke a uh, what would I say, a nostalgic melancholy. Yeah, I absolutely, I absolutely um, agree. And it also reminds me of the theme tune to the Littlest Hobo. <laughs> Maybe tomorrow. <laughs> but it is, isn't it? It's a, it's about you know. I left home, and this is me. This is my life. It's as I said. It's a man in a reverie, re- recalling his life story. Yeah, maybe tomorrow I'll finally settle down. Uh yeah, it's a brilliant folk tale. It's this is this is classic Paul Simon. Yeah, it's yeah. It, as you say, it, there's a whole tableau created in this in the song, and it's it's beautifully done. It is. Yeah, and the. Uh, Love the the, the pampite moods. <laughs> that... Well, no, so you're right. Yeah, it, it is a bit pampite moods, but but I'm um, okay with that. Exactly. I mean, I'll I mean, I'll I'll talk into me mung bean curry. Kev, I'm going to be talking about how much I enjoy accordion playing in a couple of weeks. So listen. Oh, we are definitely talking about that. <laughs> uh, well, uh, as anyone who shops in Primark will attest to, everything together unfortunately falls apart. <laughs> so I don't have a great deal to say about this I mean it, it always takes me a few bars to get into the rhythm to get to the structure of this song and it, it, that's one of the things I really like about Paul Simon's style there's, there's, there's similar to Dylan in a way there's often no obvious timbre to the, to the vocal there's no, there's no obvious rhythm to the way he sings it to the way the vocals are structured and it shouldn't work but it does so I, I think I understand why you've sort of referenced Dylan there, and I am I'm gonna sort of riff on that a bit more. The thing about thing about Dylan 
and certainly the thing about Paul Simon as well is that they have hooks, but they're not obvious hooks always. Some some songs they they absolutely are and are absolutely out there, and you you can see them. But other times they're much more subtle, and they they get into you much deeper because yeah. you don't notice them straight away. But there's like a bass line or, or or a brass or something. There's something going on that really resonates much deeper than a than a superficial obvious hook. I mean, I think I think this has got a really lovely, relaxed vibe. It's it's quite short, um, mm-hmm. but you know, it's I, I I had a lovely time listening to it. As did I. So interesting to hear you talk about sort of subtle elements that that reinforce and embolden a, a piece. <clears throat> because okay, it starts off as a sort of simple acoustic guitar arrangement, but then. As it develops, you've got a lovely bit of sort of electric piano harmonium stuff going on in the background, which just gives it a bit more depth. It's a lovely bit of bluesy folk, this, or folky blues, I don't know which. Uh, It depends uh, which side of the uh, Mason-Dixon line you are. (laughs) Excellent. (laughs) Uh, Okay, Kev, run that body down. It's a funny old song, this one, mm-hmm. because it's all perfectly nice. Oh, okay. It's all perfectly nice. He, Paul Simon sounds great. It's relaxing, but it's not dead memorable. And then you get the guitar solo, and then it's yeah. like, oh, okay. Now I get it. Now I understand where I'm going. Um, and then it's great. So you, you reference that guitar solo. So that in particular, but also the rhythm and the cadence of the instrumentation always puts me in mind of Michelle from Rubber Soul. Okay. Michelle Ma because the guitar solo in that is is similarly gentle but really effective mm-hmm. and the rhythm is ding anyway. Yeah, soothing is the word I've used to describe this. It is quite soothing. It is quite gentle. It is quite short again, but I really like it. I've read. I've I've always liked this. It's so. It's it's. This is one of those that, that directly references his wife Peggy. He says, you know, talks about her in the song. Uh, it's it's basically about you know, fucking slow down. You're gonna do yourself a mischief if you carry on this this. I can't imagine Paul Simon living a life of drink and drugs and rock and roll. But you know, that's sort of. I, the, I mean, maybe. Yeah, indeed, maybe. But that's what it is. It's it's look, you've only got so many miles in the tank. Slow down a bit. And that being the message of the song, I think the rhythm, I think the instrumentation, I think the gentle sound of his voice fits perfectly. I love it. Yeah, I mean like I'm I'm certainly not I was having it I was having a perfectly lovely time and then the guitar kicked in and then I, then it was transformed into something else and I'm going to say something very similar for the next song, to be honest. Okay. So let's go on to the next song, which is Armistice Day. So go on, I'll let you lead off. So for me, the start is, and this this is going to sound really harsh. I couldn't think of a, of a better way to describe it. So I don't mean it to be as harsh as this. It starts off a bit pedestrian, mm-hmm. but then... Once the brass and guitar kick in and get involved, 
it becomes so much more interesting. It becomes a real, like, because there's some really, for once of a better phrase, some wonky sounds going on there that I'm having a love. I like, I'm really enjoying hearing. But yeah, like, it's it's a real weird dichotomy that, like, it's not that it was boring. It's just like it, it may be a bit plodding for better, for want of a better phrase. And then, then, then it like becomes really interesting. It's it's weird. Okay, so I agree with you that the second half of the song is more interesting and more engaging than the first. But that's not to say. Oh, I'm just gonna say I fucking love this song. I love all of it. Second half, it, it ends more strongly than it finishes, but to me, it starts really strongly too. It's because it's brilliantly simple to start off with. It's one man, his acoustic guitar, some great blues licks being played. It's 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 a simple lament about the sadness of Armistice Day, and then the tone completely shifts, as you said. Funky guitar parts, high pitched horns, some synth coming in, but it never loses that rootsy, folky foundation that it has and i love it for that it becomes a bit bonkers and like um may, maybe i wanted a bit more bonkers because not, mm-hmm. be, not because not because anything's been bad i just maybe needed like something mixing up a bit um i can i can understand that and you definitely get that in the second yeah, yeah, half of definitely. The song. that's fair I, i'll go back again and say so this is this is it's almost like a gateway to your simon and garfunkel uh, you know, fanatics, if you like, because it starts off not dissimilar to some of the stuff, certainly the early days of Simon and Garfunkel that they were playing. But then it's like, let me lead you in, let me dr- let me get you in, let me get you hooked into what I'm doing. Now I'm going to change it up, but I'm still going to keep that fa- foundation of what I'm doing. That's what I love about this song. It is two very distinct movements with a common basis, and in that. And obviously, this is an artist that, that that came later, or not much later, sort of started off in a similar time. But it puts me in mind of someone like Tom Waits. Okay, yeah, I can I can see I can see where you're coming from there. I really like Armistice Day. Always have. No, like as I say, like um, and maybe it's just the the simplicity of the start that, given that we've had quite a sort of a run of acoustic Simon and Garfunkel style numbers that i would i was needing something to change up a bit and then it does change it does change it up and i'm and then i'm i'm absolutely bang into it fair enough should we flip the disc and go on to side two oh god yeah so see you me and julio down by the schoolyard kev (laughs) not bad this is not bad at all so this is the second single uh, released in May of 72. Uh, it only got to number 22 on the Billboard Hot 100. Criminal. Criminal indeed. Number 15 in the UK, so you know. That's For not, once, that's not... the UK hasn't <laughs> disgraced itself. <laughs> indeed. So yeah, it's about two boys who've broken a law, although exactly what they've done, I'll come on to this in a second, it's not stated in the song, but when Mama Pajama finds out what they've done, she goes straight to the police station well, they're going to put those boys in the house of detention. They are, the papa is going to put those boys in the house of detention. They are arrested, but they're released when a radical priest intervenes later on. It is widely believed that the reference to the radical priest is a reference to uh, Daniel Berrigan, 
who was on the cover of Time in January 1971, around the time where this song was written. So on the uh, It Was Against the Law, What Their Mama Saw, going back again to that Rolling Stone interview, John Landau asked Paul Simon, what is it that the mama saw? The whole world wants to know. Paul Simon replied, I've no idea what it is. Something sexual is what I imagine. But when I say something, I never bothered to figure out what it was. Didn't make any difference to me. Now, something sexual that was against the law. I mean, that's a wide gamut. <laughs> well, exactly. Uh, what do you think? Firstly, to give... <laughs> I'm sure Paul Simon will be delighted to hear, hear this. To give him some credit. So his first solo album, essentially, let's ignore the, the 60s one, he's opened with a reggae-infused sound, which is what nobody expects. Yeah. And then you get more of a traditional, more of his more of his sound through the course of the first side. He then opens the start of the second side with a Latin-infused... Uh, rammer. That's yeah, what it is, Kev. Freetown. fucking rammer. You know, it, and, like, the boldness of that... Because the thing is, like, because obviously we're not we're not in the era of CDs or or tapes or you know anything like that. So if people decide that they don't particularly like the first side, okay, what's the first thing you're going to hear when you flip the disc? Exactly, something completely different. Yeah. It is just brilliant. The lyrics are fantastic. It's got yep. such a brilliant rhythm. Toe tapping. Oh, it, it, it's it's just a belter. <laughs> and you know what? Like the fact that this can this can be used as an opener to a Muppets film, and in the Royal Tenenbaums yeah. as well. <laughs> yep. I mean, yeah, it is. It is a brilliant song. It is just testament to the wide, wide variety of musical influences that he has, which has obviously been showcased at the start of the album. Obviously, here at the start of the second mm-hmm. uh, side, and obviously. Two weeks later, we will have a big old chat about that as well. And you've got to love a good whistle interlude as well. Well, and it's also got that kind of... um, I don't even know what the instrument is. It's it's got a chimpanzee on backing vocals, that's what it is. That that Brazilian... Like, whatever it is. It's it's called a cuica, apparently. Yeah. Uh, But it it, it does sound like a, a chimpanzee. And actually, right at the end, it sounds like the chimpanzee is, well, climaxing. Maybe that's what was against the law, Kev! Just made Kev spit out his beer. Well, because because unfortunately, like because the way as you know my brain works, you saying that instantly made my brain think about bonobo monkeys. <laughs> and so the, the, there was an experiment on where like they left a camera in front of a various primates, and the chimps um, had a battle over it. Uh, to find like who had control of this this thing they didn't know what it was, and that basically happened in lots of the patriarchal societies. Bonobos, which are matriarchal, um, had a look at it and then decided to get it on <laughs> in celebration of the new thing that they discovered. Let's fuck. <laughs> I can get with that. <laughs> so yeah, that's what. Unfortunately, that's what went into my brain, and why I almost spat me being everywhere. Oh, so I know I've decided that's that is that is what Mama Pajama saw. She saw the chimpanzee <laughs> down by the schoolyard, and if that is what she indeed saw, then then I I I fully support her running down to the police station 
So, you know. Yeah, I mean, we, we cannot, and Album Clash officially does not condone that kind of action. We are officially anti-bestiality on Album Clash. Let us state <laughs> I mean, that I, mean I know we've record. gone out on a limb. There. <laughs> <laughs> but we, we're planting our, our flag there. <laughs> <laughs> like Graham Souness on Fenerbahce's ground. <laughs> I wonder where you're going with Graham Souness. That, that would be very libelous. <laughs> <laughs> Shall we move deftly on to Peace Like a River, Kev? <laughs> we should. <laughs> uh, I absolutely love the lyrics to this. So let, I'm just going to read a few of them. Misinformation followed us like a plague. Nobody knew from time to time if the plans had changed. You can beat us with wires. You can beat us with chains. You can run out your rules, but you know you can't outrun the history train. It is a good old-fashioned protest song. It's it's brilliant. It's got a proper moody, atmospheric sound to it. With and the the vocals are brilliant. The lyrics are great. It's absolutely phenomenal. And it's got a filthy guitar part to yeah, it has- as well. Yeah, it's really good. I like this a lot. I don't have a great deal more to say about it. No. It's brilliant. Okay, Papa Hobo. Um, The least popular of the Smurfs. (laughs) (laughs) Very well travelled, though. (laughs) Spare change. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Um, So I just talked about how much I like the lyrics on Peace Like a River... The opening lyric in this, I mean, talk about evocative. It's carbon and monoxide, the old Detroit perfume. That's just... (laughs) That's a cracker. It is, even though, technically, Paul, carbon monoxide, odorless, but I'll let it slide. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it is. Well, yeah. I I mean, I'm I'm very aware of this. But but it's it's such a great... It's it's a very evocative lyric. It is, isn't it? It is. So what I've said about this is, again, it's a bit of a throwback to the Simon and Garfunkel days. But to me, at least, without Art Garfunkel's voice and the need to incorporate those iconic harmonies into the song, Paul Simon just seems freer to express himself mm-hmm. in the way he sings it. He does do- that make sense? Yeah, no, that makes that makes perfect sense. He doesn't have to build into the song a belting solo no indeed it did like none none of these require a i mean like again not not being particularly kind to art garfunkel but doesn't need a mariah carey uh warble <laughs> brilliant <laughs> you're right though you're absolutely yeah. right and there's a lovely bit of bass harmonica in this too gotta love a bass harmonica Indeed, an underused instrument in, in modern music. You know, Brian Wilson knew what he was doing when he recorded Pet Sounds. Well, as we've discussed before, somebody doesn't agree, but that's because he's an idiot. <laughs> and or promoting an album. Also, Mike Love. <laughs> Look, can, yeah, I don't, I, I don't even need to get on to Mike Love. No. no. You weren't even a Wilson. Like, you wouldn't cousin. <laughs> Exactly, like not even Paul Gallagher. <laughs> I'm the true holder of the Beach Boys flame. No, you wanted them to do the same thing over and over. Exactly, and let, let's be let's be absolutely clear, Mike Love. 
you cannot claim to be the true holder of the Beach Boys flame. You wrote fucking Kokomo for Christ's sake. I hate that song. Yeah. <laughs> uh, right, let's move on. So we, well, we follow up Papa Hobo with a lovely piece of throwaway bluegrass for a couple of minutes. Hobo's Blues. So I don't even think it's, it's bluegrass. I think it's pure Django Reinhardt. Oh, I've said it's like the theme tune to Woody's Roundup in Toy Story 2. <laughs> What is Roundup? <laughs> He's the rootin'est, tootin'est cowboy in the wild, wild west. Although, to be fair, to be fair to everyone involved, it's not particularly hard to draw a line between Paul Simon and Randy Newman. So you know, <laughs> it's not though, is it? No, it isn't. Um, but I'm going to I'm going to try and steer us back to some kind of musical criticism. <laughs> um, unusually for me. Yeah, so I think it's got a pure Django Reinhardt sound to it. Um, it is that kind of classic jazz guitar sound, and yep. it's great. I, I love it. it. Great. I love it too. I'd like. I'd. We've said this a few times about things that are, that seem like they're throwaway, whimsical tracks on albums. I want more of it. Yeah. I want more than than just under two minutes of it. It's really good, and I agree with the with the Django Reinhardt comparison. Actually, yeah, I. I I like it a lot. Uh, Django Reinhardt, not to be confused with Judge Reinhold of Vice Versa fame. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yes, I went with that remake of Freaky Friday. <laughs> uh, we are, well, eking towards the end, considering how much silliness we've got into. I mean, You've got again, a hell of a job, Edison. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that's true. I have uh, paranoia blues. I mean, it's really good, isn't it? Um, yeah, it's brilliant. It's, it's it's proper fun. I love the slide with like yes. it's got with an off kilter brass going on. Yeah, it's really interesting. It's it the the song itself is fairly simple, but all the elements kind of thrown together makes it into something much more transcendent. Agreed. So that you mentioned the slide guitar, it's it's great. I love it. It's it's filthy that guitar part, and it's got John Lee Hooker running all the way through it. And okay, mm-hmm. that is emphasised by the boom, boom, boom lyrical homage as well. It's clearly a, a, a John Lee Hooker influenced song. This and there's nothing wrong with that, by the way. The sax part, I agree. It sounds great lyrically. I really like this. And the, the, the fact the title is called Paranoia Blues because it really does evoke the dangers of being alone in that grimy, gritty, run-down New York that we see in, well, a lot of black exploitation cinema, to be honest with you. Well, not just that. Like, if you listen to this after watching Mean Streets mm. um, or Taxi Driver... Absolutely, yes. Then it's that, you know... Times Square isn't for the tourists. No. This is not a friendly city. Indeed. New York in the 70s was not the Upper East Side that Woody Allen would have you believe it was. No. Much more uh, akin to uh, that uh, portrayed in Crocodile Dundee 1. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. Call this a knife. (laughs) And... I really like Paranoia Blues. It's a really good song. Yeah, it is. It's really good. Okay, and we end things with a uh, Cliff Richard cover. 
Congratulations. Oh, you absolute shitbag. That is... <laughs> if I get congratulations stuck in my head, I'm, I'm coming for you. Dear. I, I am. I will be Liam Neeson in Taken. I will find you, <laughs> and you will kill me. Yes. <laughs> find him and make him dead. <laughs> oh God! Wow, it's a long time yeah. since I've thought about that. Uh, I'm probably going to leave that in. So, guys, it's a trailer, guys, to a film that we have no idea what it's called. We saw it when we were watching. I think it was before we watched Napoleon Dynamite, the only film I've ever turned off before the end because it was fucking dreadful. Uh, yeah, it was. A, it was, that was like it. it was like a euro. It was like a euro action film. Yeah, and some it, shit like, Eastern Europe. And the tra- well, actually, I, no, I, I thought it was a Cockney gangster film, but there was an Eastern European villain in it. I can't see in my head. It was like you know similar to similar to Taxi or something like. It, it was a. It was a like a French. Uh, action film and for some reason like in the trailer one of the characters says find him and make him dead and <laughs> me and him have basically held on to that for it's the, years it's, it's the greatest six words in cinema it's history. honestly it, like i think it's the triumph for cinema it is it is absolutely right absolutely <laughs> absolutely right oh god anyway congratulations what do you think of the closer Hmm. Yeah, it just kind of plods. It's mm. not really very inspiring. It's nope. It's a real shame to end the album this yep. way. Yeah, yeah. Just it left me cold. I, I don't think I'm quite so down on it as you, because I I like the arrangement, certainly the the electric piano and organ parts that that take you out of the album. Mm. But. Paranoia Blues should be the closer, not this. this yeah, it's be. not this needed. Is, it's not needed, or if it's going to be on the on the album, it should be somewhere else. Um, it's more akin to what you've heard on the first side. Yep. And yep. so it feels it feels out of place with everything else you've heard on the second side, which is much it, more experimental. Yeah, it's out of place where it is. So, if you switched. And I'm not saying Armistice Day should close the album, but if Armistice Day moved to side two and this moved to side one, okay, you might say, well, side one ends in a bit of a plodding way. So you can perhaps see it. But Paranoia Blue should close this album. It just it should. If you if you close this album with Armistice Day and then Paranoia Blues, there you go. That's my view. I think well, it would it would certainly be a much more inspiring ending. There's no there's no question about that. That said, I don't dislike the song in and of itself. It's no, fine. I don't think it's bad. It's just, as I say, it's a bit plotting. Yeah, I agree. I agree. All right, we are done with the tracks. Shall we do some reviews? Absolutely. Right, okay. So mostly, as we've been through when we did Top Trumps, the reviews were very, very positive. Not all of them were, however. So, in Stereo Review, Noel Coppage or copage, I don't know, uh, he called it undistinguished. And he added, I gather this album is merely Simon's way of keeping his hand in while Garfunkel makes moves. I'm now wondering if Garfunkel's arranging work doesn't include sending Simon back to rewrite some of his songs before recording them. Wow. <laughs> really harsh. It's really harsh. I mean, history has not been kind to that review. <laughs> no. 
Um, in a contemporary review for All Music, William Ruhlman wrote, if any musical justification were needed for the breakup of Simon and Garfunkel, it could be found on this striking collection, Paul Simon's post-split debut. From the opening cut, Mother and Child Reunion, Simon broke free, heralding the rise of reggae with an exuberant track recorded in Jamaica for a song about death. I mean... I'm not sure I agree with heralding the rise of reggae stuff. That seems a bit white saviour to me, but I get the point. Most of the album had a low-key feel, with Simon on acoustic guitar backed by only a few trusted associates. Singing a group of informal, intimate, funny and closely observed songs. Funny's right, actually. We've not talked about that very much, but it is quite a funny album, Mm -hmm. lyrically. It was miles removed from the big, stately ballad style of Bridge Over Trouble Water and signalled that Simon was a versatile songwriter as well as an expressive singer with a much broader range of musical interests than he'd previously demonstrated. He didn't miss Art Garfunkel on Paul Simon, not only because Simon didn't write Garfunkel-like showcases for himself, exactly to your point earlier on, but because the songs he did write showed off his own more varied musical strengths. Which as often for all music, is pretty much bob-on. As, as is usual, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, indeed. Um, I, I'm going to move on to Nobby. I've not got any other reviews that I've particularly quoted, so I'm just going to go on to Nobby's review, if I may. Yeah. So, as I said, he absolutely loved this. He gave it an A+. And while this isn't a particularly remarkable Nobby review, uh, we will stick with tradition and include it. But honestly, guys, you, you I just... Tune in in two weeks' time. If if for nothing else, just listen to Robert Chris Crow's <laughs> review of Graceland. There is an absolute doozy in there. <laughs> right, okay. So, what did Robert Chris Crow say about Paul Simon in his review for The Village Voice? I've been saying nasty things about Simon since 1967, but this is the best new record I've heard since Who's Next? The first record I've been evangelical about since The Joy of Cooking, and the only thing in the universe to make me positively happy in the first two weeks of February 1972. I hope Art Garfunkel is gone for good. He always seemed so vestigial, I agree with that, but it's obvious now that two-part harmony crippled Simon's naturally agile singing and composing. I agree with that too. And the words... This is a professional tour of Manhattan for youth culture grads, complete with Bella Abzug, Hard Rain, and people who steal your chow fong. Yes, we didn't talk about that. Someone nicks his Chinese meal in Paranoia Blues. Snide. Bastard. He's well snide. The self-production is brilliantly economical and lively, with the guitars of Jerry Hahn and Stefan Grossman and Ayato Marrera's percussion especially inspired choices. Yeah, I kind of agree, Nobby, I have to say. As we have said before, stop clock. Yeah, indeed. As I said, just give it a couple of weeks, guys. Don't worry. (laughs) (laughs) I've got a little bit on Legacy, not loads. Okay. So, uh, as I said, the album was was really positively reviewed. It sold well. Not phenomenally, but well. He folded it up in 1973 with There Goes Ryan Simon. Uh, The lead single from that was Kodachrome, which is... A boss tune, I think we would all agree. Uh, yeah, I think uh, last week when we were talking about oh yes, you class, did mention uh, it, didn't you? Yes, uh, yes, I said when we were talking about Glastonbury and people just didn't react to that at all. Yeah, madness. Uh, I got a number two on the Billboard Hot 100 in '75. He released "Still Crazy" after all these years. Uh, that featured 50 ways to leave your lover." 
that got to number one on the Billboard Hot 100 because it's great. Uh, his only single to reach number one in the States, actually, that. He put together a benefit show at Madison Square Garden in 1976 to raise money for the New York Public Library. I mean, I love that. One of the biggest recording artists in the world doing a benefit show for his local library. Get in. Yeah. Brilliant. Uh, well, I mean, he is a man of New York. He is very much a man of New York, yes. Uh, so on that bill, Phoebe Snow, Jimmy Cliff also performed. Uh, it raised over $30,000 for the library, which in '76 is, you know, not an insubstantial amount of money. Well, and like, obviously, Jimmy Cliff's band were, uh, were doing two uh <laughs> Working two double sets, time, yeah. doing double sessions, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, indeed. Much like Booker T and the MGs when we when we took, did the Stacks review <laughs> the other week. The other, well, the other week, that was months ago now. <laughs> so uh, he uh, was less productive, let's say, in the second half of the 70s. Um, he did do some acting himself, so he had a, a part in, well, I said about Woody Allen earlier on, he had a small part in Annie Hall as the character Tony Lacey. Did he also play uh, the critic? Sorry, go on. <laughs> right. Obviously, this bit, this little bit, I'll, I'll do, I'll do that again. Um, so, did he play Jay Sherman, the critic? <laughs> <laughs> Much funnier second time round. I apologise. <laughs> Entirely my fault. Leaving it all in because that's a reflection on me. Brilliant. Um, also John Lovitz very funny man also a very short man as well yes (laughs) indeed I mean this wouldn't work at all but there's an argument to say that John Lovitz would be the perfect person to play Paul Simon (laughs) (laughs) it stinks it stinks (laughs) yes Mr Sherman everything stinks Uh, Okay, in 1980, One Trick Pony was released. Uh, That was an album to accompany the film of the same name, which Paul Simon wrote and starred in. I haven't seen the film. I do have the album. Uh, It didn't sell particularly well. I really like it. It does feature Late in the Evening, which Which is is an absolute banger. It is a belter, you're right. Uh, It's actually also hit Paul Simon's last top 10 hit in the US. Spoiler alert. Wow. Yeah, exactly. Uh, He has reunited with Art Garfunkel a few times for live performances. So in September of 81, they played a concert in Central Park. And they famously fell out massively straight afterwards. They did famously fall out straight afterwards. Perhaps, this is my speculation entirely, perhaps that might be in part due to the fact that the set list included no fewer than eight Paul Simon solo songs, although five of which were performed as duets. (laughs) (laughs) They did play gigs together. Well, basically, they appeared to go on a sort of 10, 12-year time scale. So they played another gig together in 1993. I think and again, fell out again. 2003. <laughs> yeah, basically, they don't get on. They don't get on. Just stop it, fellas. Well, is it like the, enough time passes and go, should we, give it, should we give it a go again? Okay. Oh, yeah, I remember. I actually hate you. Okay. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Right, so the last thing I'm going to say is in January of 1985, Paul Simon uh, performed on the lamentable fundraising single, 
We Are The World to raise money for the famine in Africa. Well, not for the famine in Africa. That would be monstrous. (laughs) 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 Pro-famine. And yeah, I think at that point, I will uh, leave it for you to pick up in a couple of weeks' time. Okay. Right, Kevin, from Paul Simon, what's your best? What's your worst? So my best. I'm sorry. I'm going to be Johnny Obvious. It's me and Julio down by the schoolyard. It's brilliant. Okay. I mean, I could, I could have picked, I could have picked several other things, um, but no, it, it is, it's great. Yeah, it is great. Go on. What's your worst song? Worst song. Um, congratulations. It's, it, it feels a letdown. Yeah. Okay. So, um, uh, I'm going to remove all debate uh, because ditto, ditto. Um, uh, yeah, uh, me and Julio down by the schoolyard is an absolute banger, as I said. I would give special mention to both Armistice Day and Paranoia Blues. I love them both. And uh, Mother and Child Reunion, for that matter. Of course, yeah. Fucking great song. Uh, and yeah, congratulations. Whilst I don't dislike it in and of itself, it is a letdown at the end of the album. It's in the wrong place. It's not a standout track. So yeah. We are agreed entirely. Uh, I think that's us, Kev. Okay. Okay. What living plant stroke fungal (laughs) beings are you going to associate with famous political leaders this week? So I'm going to do, I'm going to mix it up a little bit this, uh, this week. So I'm, I'm, so there's going to be two Twitter things. Two? Two. Two's gone mad with power. Um, So the first thing is, if you're not aware, and obviously those of you who are not in the UK will not be aware of uh, some of our ludicrous uh, political commentators or columnists. So I'm going to bring some of them to your attention. Uh, So there's one called Petronella Wyatt, who has been in the news in the UK this week because (laughs) I quote... Yes! I know of two British women in a well-known London hospital who came back from Turkey with no kidneys. Their organs were literally stolen while the women were under anaesthetic. Can you point to any fallacy in this statement, Kevin? I'm going to point to the no kidney part. <laughs> are you are you casting doubt on the fact that, that women were a removed of their kidneys in surreptitious manner whilst they were undergoing cosmetic procedures, and or B, the fact that they, without any kidneys, managed to fly back to the UK before being admitted to hospital. Or managed to continue living after the removal of both their kidneys. I'm calling a 100% level of bullshit. Uh, do you have the follow-up to that, by the way? Oh, I'm a well aware of the follow-up where she tries to dig herself out the hole and says, oh, wait there, it was one kidney. Oh, wait there, this was told to me by someone, by a nurse. <laughs> and as you have quoted before, one has to call up the brilliant Limmy sketch, Don't Bat Doon. Double, double Doon. <laughs> the classic example, yes. surely. <laughs> Okay, so you could you can see that tweet still on Twitter. Amazingly, she hasn't She's deleted not it. Deleted it. Also, why is she named after a, a, a candle? <laughs> <laughs> but um, what I also wanted to point in your general direction was so obviously we have discussed quite often during this section 
around the potential fears that we have of AI and robots taking over the world. I am here to provide some level of, at least for now, uh, comfort to Tim and the other listeners. So a bot wrote this obituary. Okay. So Brenda Tent retired from living at the age of old, surrounded by family and natural causes. A librarian from birth, Brenda was an avid collector of dust. She had a sweetheart and married her high school. She loved having hobbies and helping her sons to be disadvantaged youths. She had no horses, but thought she did. (laughs) Okay, it gets better. Um, The church gave her a choir because she sang like a bird and looked like a bird, and Brenda was a bird. She owed us so many poems. <laughs> she owed us so many <laughs> What a bitch! Oh, she it? never gave us the poems! Yeah, I know. And the funeral will be held in 1977 in heaven. <laughs> in lieu of flowers, send Brenda more life. That's a reasonable request, at least. I wasn't sure I could I could get anywhere near revolutionary mushroom level, but fortunately Twitter did come good this week. So, if you want, can to... I ask a question? <laughs> can I ask a question? I'm sorry. Has Spike Milligan's brain been transformed into an AI? <laughs> Clearly, she owes us oh. more poems. <laughs> Oh, goodness me. So if you, wow. want, if you want to hear the inane ramblings of Daily Mail columnists or the absolute lunacy of uh, bots, uh, you can check that out on Twitter. Whilst on Twitter, you can go to our Twitter page, at Clash Album. If you like carefully curated quality content, you can go to our Insta, at Clash Album. Or if you want to send an obituary that <laughs> meets that standard, please send it to our email, albumclash at gmail.com Oh, fucking hell. Wow. Wow. Well done, Kevin. I mean, I nearly laughed up a lung there. It's so good. Excellent stuff. Well, we said you wouldn't be, you wouldn't surpass yourself. You may have done. You may have done. Lord knows where you're going in a couple of weeks. Goodness me. Right. I suggest it's time to go. Yeah, I think it is. I need a break. I need some fresh air after that. <laughs> Honestly, one of the best things I've ever seen. Yep. One of the best things I've ever heard. <laughs> um, right. Thank you so much for listening, guys. I mean, if for nothing else, your 80 minutes of patience was surely rewarded by that magnificent soliloquy <laughs> inspired by AI that Kevin has just provided for us. Um yeah, if you liked it, please subscribe to us. Please give us all the good ratings and tell everyone how great we are. Genuinely, if there's someone that you think, ah, oh, you might enjoy this, let them know. 
share it with them. It, it genuinely helps us, obviously, get 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 more traction, get more listeners. Get involved on the socials if you want. I mean, fucking hell, if that sort of stuff Kev's turning out, then then fair play. <laughs> All that is left for me to say, however... Well, actually, no, sorry, Kevin, just remind people, in two weeks' time, what are you going to be going through? So we will be going through Paul Simon's Graceland. We will indeed. Uh, looking forward to that very much. All that is left for me to say is, I have been Tim... And it was most definitely against the law. And I also owe you more poems. And I have <laughs> <laughs> We'll see you in a couple of weeks, guys. Cheers, bye. Ta-da.